Glad to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Glad you're here with us as we are concluding our four-week series called We Are. We've been describing over the past four weeks the kind of church that we want to be. Pastor Trey, over the past three weeks, has explained three aspects or three uh, features of who we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that loves God. We want to be a church that loves the church. We want to be a church that loves the city, and today in Psalm 67, we're going to see that we need to be a church that loves the world. So in Psalm 67, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, You know, I talk about my kids a lot because they're funny and they're cool, but anyways, my youngest kid the other day had on this full doctor getup, had on the doctor coat, the little plastic stethoscope. And one of the things that she'll do, no matter who she's playing with, with the doctor's stethoscope, is she'll come up to you and put the, the edge of the stethoscope wherever on your body and go, dum-dum, dum-dum, dum-dum. She'll verbalize the heartbeat. It doesn't matter if she's putting that thing on your big toe. She's going to say, dum-dum, dum-dum. And I don't have the heart to tell her, you're probably not going get, to get a good read on my heartbeat down there on my big toe. But if we were to take a stethoscope and to place it on the Bible... It doesn't matter where you put it. You're going to find that God's heart beats for the world. And we're going to look at Psalm 67, and it beats very strong, this desire that God has for the world from Psalm 67. And what we're going to see this morning is that we have been blessed in Christ for the benefit of the world. So let's read together Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. We have been blessed in Christ for the benefit of the world. And what does that look like? So we're going to take this apart verse verse by verse and see that in the first two, we have been blessed so that the world may know God. We have been blessed so that the world may know God. Go back to verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. So the psalmist prays, this is a prayer, and it's an interesting prayer because it's more of a declarative prayer. May God be gracious to us and bless us so that all the world would know you. But notice something. He says, us, several times. We have a tendency in our reading of the Bible to individualize the Bible. May God be gracious to me and and bless me. But this is a corporate psalm that the, the body of Christ would sing together, that we would pray this together. May God bless us as a whole that the world may know God. Now this prayer opens up with a condensed version of a blessing that we find in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. This is what it says, Thus spoke Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, those were the priests, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
The concept of blessing is all throughout the Old Testament, but it's a concept we have to get right if we're going to understand what it means for us to be blessed biblically. You see, God has always been a gracious God who has blessed his people. But I think we miss something fundamental to the concept of blessing when we, when we detach the blessing of God from the kingdom of God. God's blessing is meant to benefit those in the kingdom and those outside of it. It's meant to build the kingdom by drawing outsiders in. See, the concept of blessing starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 with Adam and Eve. And he blessed them and, and said to them, multiply over the face of the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. But then we see it again in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. God comes to him, calls him out of a foreign land, says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. In 15 and 17, he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars. But the important thing is at the end of Genesis chapter 12, he says, in you, all of the world will be blessed. Even at the very beginning, the concept of blessing Abraham had global intentions. In church, in Christ, we are a blessed people, and our, our purpose remains the same. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the Psalm 67 of the New Testament. The reason why we have been shown grace, the reason why we have been blessed, is so that we would make God known among the world. But what's at the heart of this blessing? It's at the back half of verse 1. He says, make your face shine upon us. The blessing is the presence and favor of God. You know, maybe uh, in your lifespan, maybe your parents have said this to you, maybe you've said this to your kids who have uh, done something sinful. Maybe your wife or your spouse has said it to you, oh, I can't even look at you right now. You've done something so dumb, I can't even look at you right now. Maybe it happened on the way to church this morning. <clears throat> I just can't, I can't look at you. We turn our face away in shame. But church, in Christ... God turns his face toward us. As those who have experienced the grace of God, the forgiveness of God in Christ, God has now turned his face toward us in grace and blessing and favor. That we would know him and enjoy him and worship him. But if our purpose, if we've been blessed so that the world would know God, what's keeping us from making God known in the world? I think there's a few things. First, we forget our own need for grace. Most of us, when we listened to or read the first verse of Psalm 67, we blew right past the request to, for God to be gracious to us and ran to the God to bless us. If you go back and look, I, I promise it's there. I know that you probably ran past it, but may God be gracious to us. When we forget our own need for grace, we slowly drift into a self-righteous type of religion that thinks that if I do more, if I do all the right things, then God's going to bless me more and I'm, I'm somehow above that. And what ends up happening is in our self-righteousness, we create distance between ourselves and others 
who need to hear the gospel. When we forget our need for grace, we begin to start thinking, oh yeah, maybe I deserve some of this blessing from God. Maybe I deserve all this. Let me remind you, we don't deserve anything. We deserve, in fact, to be cursed for our sin and cut off from God. But Christ became a curse for us, taking on the weight of our sin, dying for it on the cross, and rising from the dead so that we could experience life and blessing as we know God. We cannot forget our own need for grace. But another way that we, you know, another thing that keeps us from knowing, from making God known among the world is that we hijack God's blessing. We hijack God's blessing. Whenever God sends blessing to us, he sends it down a dead-end street. It terminates with us. We have people all around us. You'll You'll find all kind of people, all kind of teachers that say, that God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and he wants you to have everything your heart desires. But if you notice, it's always something temporal or something material. It is a very superficial view of God's blessing. And this is in essence what the prosperity gospel teaches, also known as the word of faith movement. That God wants you to be healthy, wants you to be wealthy, and all you have to do is say positive things or manifest something into reality so that you can have the life you want. That is a dangerous, dangerous, false gospel. Now, why does, what does this have to do with mission? What does that have to do with, you might be asking that question. Well, let me put it bluntly. The gospel, uh, the prosperity gospel aborts the blessing of God. It kills the blessing before it ever has a chance to accomplish its purpose. God intends to bless us so that the world may be blessed. But the prosperity gospel teaches that God's blessing terminates on you. You're the end of it. God blesses his people in Christ so that the world may know, in verse 2, of his saving power, his salvation. That's why God blesses his people. Yet, the prosperity gospel rebrands the Great Commission as the great commodity. Brothers and sisters, do not fall into this. Now, don't get me wrong. God does give good gifts to his children. He blesses his people, but you don't control how he blesses you. And it's not wrong to to pray for God to to bless us in specific ways, but you can ask for good blessings with wrong motives. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Church, have we hijacked God's blessing and diverted it from its true end of making him known among the nations and twisted it to be about us. Our ultimate blessedness does not come through money, fame, nice cars, or even good health. It comes through Jesus. And the last thing that keeps us from making God known in the world is that we lose sight of the source of blessing, Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham, that blessing that God gave to Abraham, he said, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. Paul tells us that that word offspring wasn't plural. It was singular. There was one offspring who would come through whom the entire world would be blessed, and that offspring was Christ. 
And in Christ, we have the opportunity to know God, to enjoy God, to worship God, to be forgiven of sin, to be called chosen and holy and blameless in Christ before God so that we will spend eternity with him because of what Christ did for us. If you want a list of all the blessings that you have in Christ, go read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 4. Church, the measure of our blessing is not in material things. The measure of our blessing is what we have in Christ. We have been blessed in Christ so that the world may know God. Maybe you've heard the phrase, uh, count your blessings, right? Whenever things are going bad, count your blessings. And then by the time you get to the end of the list, you'll realize, oh, you know, things aren't that bad. Things aren't that bad. They could be worse. Friends, don't just count your blessings. Count your blessings in Christ. Because by the time you get to the end of that list, you'll be thinking, things aren't just not that bad. Things are incredible. The God who created the universe knows me and loves me and has chosen me, has saved me, has forgiven me of my sin, has now secured eternity for me with him forever in Christ. Y'all, things just aren't that bad. They are amazing. The blessings that we have in Christ are incredible. But we've been blessed in him so that the world may know. second thing that I think we need to see about our blessing is in verses 3 through 5. We have been blessed so that the world may not only know God, but rejoice in God. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You see, out of a true knowledge of God flows the praise of God. You know, I know that there's, you know, maybe some of us in here who really like reading theology or getting to know God. There's a great book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I'd recommend you read it. But what true knowledge of God should lead to is the true praise of God. And the psalmist is praying, Lord, out of all of the blessedness that we have received from your hand, the grace of forgiveness, of being called your people, the blessing of knowing you and having your face turned towards us in relationship. I want the whole world to know that. Let the peoples praise. Let everyone praise you. Notice that it's not just the peoples, it's all the peoples. Let all of them praise you, all of the nations. He wants to see and to hear the world rejoice. Does your heart hope for the joy of the nations? Now, what is the reason for their joy? Let them be glad in what? He says, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on the earth. To summarize that, let them rejoice in the fact that God is king and he rules over and leads his people. This word there for guide is the same word used in the Old Testament as God had miraculously saved his people out of their slavery in Egypt and guided them through the wilderness to the promised land. In the middle of that, what you might call an exile between where they were coming from and where they were going to, God provided them 
provided for them, guided them all the way safely home, no matter how rough things got in between. Church, there's not much that's right in our world today, but God, through his rule over the earth, and make no mistake, he does rule and govern and is sovereign over kings and nations. Nothing escapes his rule. But even though there's not much right, we have a king who is going to make everything right again. And he deserves the glory for that. And this psalmist is saying, this king, I, he doesn't just deserve my praise that I can offer. He deserves praise to resound from every corner of the world. But where does this gladness come from? Where does this gladness come from? You remember in the New Testament as the pages fall open to, to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the angels announce the birth of Jesus, what is it that they tell? Joy to what? Joy to the world. Not just joy to the shepherds, not just joy to the sinners, but joy to the world. Whenever Jesus came, he came as the king through whom the world would rejoice. Through him, through his salvation, he is a good and just king, and he will rule and reign over all things. This king has come, he is good, and following him leads to a life, eternal life, and a life of blessing. So, if we're blessed to, so to make sure that the world knows God, that they rejoice in God, what's keeping us from pursuing the joy of the world? If that's why Jesus came, so that the world would rejoice in God, what's keeping us from doing that? We don't rejoice in God. Let me just ask you a question. Does your knowledge of God produce joy? Does it produce praise? Can you say with the psalmist, I want all people to praise this God because of what he has done for me. I have not forgotten my need of grace. I have not forgotten from where he pulled me from. I want the whole world to know. But you can't give what you don't have. Church, we need to go back again to the gospel. As I said earlier, go down the list of how you are blessed in Christ. And you will be reminded of how much grace God has shown you and it will cause you to rejoice in the middle of whatever circumstance you're going through. But often we've also kind of domesticated our faith. We've made our, our, the faith, the gospel, about a lot less than it really is. David Livingston was a missionary to Africa in his 20s and spent a long time there. And he said, if we do not have enough in our faith to share it with all the world, then it is doomed here at home. But the truth is, there is enough, there is plenty of our faith in Christ. There is plenty in our Christian belief to share it with the world. So the question is, do we rejoice in it? Do we know our faith well enough to know how much joy it produces? Now, a second reason that uh, may keep us from pursuing the joy of the world is that we desire our comfort 
over God's glory and the world's gladness. We desire our comfort over God's glory and the world's gladness. Our prayer should be with the psalmist, let the nations be glad. Let the people rejoice in the God who saves. But too often our prayer is, oh Lord, let me be comfortable. Let my life be easy. Take away all the hard things. Let me just glide through life. We are dominated by lesser desires than the glory of God. That is part of our problem. We consider any step of obedience in following Jesus to get the gospel to the nations as a sacrifice. But David Livingston, he said, if we consider it an honor to receive a commission from an earthly king, why would it not be a greater honor to receive a commission from a heavenly king? This is no sacrifice. This is a privilege. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We want to be comfortable. But my friends, the nations won't be glad if we stay comfortable. The nations will not sing if the church stays silent. You see, this prayer comes from a people. How, you may, may think, like, how, how do you have that, that expression here in Psalm 67, verse 3, let the peoples be glad and rejoice. And if you notice, my English people, my English uh, teachers, there's exclamation marks in there. That's a shout. Let the peoples be glad. Let the nations rejoice. How do you have that? This prayer comes from a people who are enthralled at the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God toward sinners. And they're enthralled that God would reach out to them. And in the same way, God reaches out through them to the world so that the world might know and rejoice just as we do. So we've been blessed so that the world may know God. We've been blessed so that the world may rejoice in God. But we've also been blessed so that the world may worship God. Look with me in verse 6 through 7. The church has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. See, that may seem weird in verse 6. It says the earth has yielded its increase. What does that mean? This psalm was probably a harvest psalm that, the, that the, the people of God in the Old Testament would sing as they were going out to gather their food that God had provided for them yet again. So the earth has yielded its increase. They're celebrating God's provision. And then it ends by saying, let the whole earth fear God. What's that about? This fear that, he's, that is, is written about here is not a terror or a dread recoiling away from the presence of God in fear. 
This fear is talking about a submission to God, a recognition of his absolute authority, a submission of one's entire life to him, to worship him. That all the ends of the earth fear him. That is the essence of what this is talking about, the worship of God. You might remember in the Old Testament, the story of Joshua and Rahab. Joshua sends the spies in to scope out the land. And Rahab houses them, keeping them safe. And what she says to the spies is interesting. She says, you know, we've heard about what your God did for you. We've heard about how he miraculously saved you out of Egypt and what your God did to the Egyptians. There's a recognition that this God is the true God, that the God of these people who are coming in is the true God. And what Rahab does is submit herself to that God and recognizes that he alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of her entire life of laying before him. You see, our worship is more than just our singing. If we think our worship of God is limited to what happens right here, we've got the whole thing wrong. It is also our submission to him, our honoring him with our lives. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, and this is your spiritual act of worship. That your whole life is laid before God to do with what he pleases. Joining him in his mission. He wants to use his blessed people for the benefit of of the world, that the world would know him through Jesus, would rejoice in him, and worship him alone. The glory of God should be our greatest motivator to taking Jesus to the world. Because, to paraphrase one author, if I rely on my compassion, if I rely on my compassion, y'all, my emotions and how I feel change from day to day. If I rely on my pity, I'm going to feel it one day and I'm not going to feel it the next. But the one thing that doesn't change is the glory of God and the fact that he deserves honor and praise. That is the primary motivator for us to get the gospel to the world. You know, Jesus knew the Psalms really well. And whenever you think for a minute about the fact that he sung these and he prayed these, it brings an interesting nuance to it. But as I said, this is a harvest psalm. And Jesus, in John 4, 35-38, after the conversation with the woman at the well, he tells his disciples, he says, Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And he tells his disciples later that the fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Church, what's keeping us from pursuing the worship of God among the world? We don't think it's for us. We don't think this mission is for us. We think it's up to somebody else to do this. It's up for just the missionary or this, that, or the other to go and do that. It's, I'm just here to sit and be, gather and worship and then go home. But the mission is for every Christian. You see, unlike Israel, who had a class of people that were the priests, 
The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.9, we are a kingdom of priests who have been blessed to take the gospel to the world. We are all, we all share in this ministry together. This is a responsibility of us all. So when Jesus gives us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, he didn't just say, hey, some of y'all think about that. He said, this is my charge to my church. The question is, will we do it? Every Christian may not be a missionary who goes overseas, but every Christian must have a missionary heart. So how can we develop a heart for the nations? Pray for the world. Pray for the world. Jesus told his, his disciples, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. Pray. When you gather for your life groups, pray for the world. Find an unreached people group, Joshua Project. Go there. They have a list of them. Find an unreached people group and pray for them when you gather. Even more generally, pray for the lost when you gather with your life group. Pray for the lost with your family at the dinner table. You pray. Go. Oh, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Oh, yeah, just go. Go. Go to the world. We just had people standing up here who had committed to go to take the gospel to the nations. As my seminary president said, the question is not why should I go. The question is why should I stay. You can pray you can go, and you could send others to the world. If you caught this in Bruce's prayer, there is a cost to go. There's, there's a large cost to go. Not even, not even, I'm not even talking monetarily. To go and serve the nations, it will cost. But there is a monetary cost, and you can send others to the nations. You may not be physically able to go, but you can send others. You can pray for them. You can give financially to send them, to take the gospel to a place where it needs to go. But the last thing that I think keeps us from seeing or desiring or pursuing the worship of God among the nations is that if we're honest, sometimes we don't believe that God will do what he says. Because we look at the world and we're so inundated with how bad things are we forget, as the middle of the psalm says, our God is a God who rules over all that. Nothing is thwarting God's plan. Nothing's making him sit in the heavens and go, hmm, I wonder how I'm going to figure this out. You see, the last section of the psalm demonstrates a confidence that, the, that people from all nations will turn to God. People will turn to God because of the gospel and the missionary efforts of God's people. And we're given a glimpse into that in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Y'all, we're given the end of the story. 
people from all nations will worship and gather. That's God's plan. The question is not will that happen. The question is will we be a part of it. Because church, on that day, we will see and hear people praising God in joy. We will hear people praising God in Spanish, in German, in Creole, in Igbo, in Yoruba, Vietnamese, Hindi, Cantonese, Mandarin. We will have a symphony of all ethnicities praying and praising to the one God under the name of Jesus Christ. We will see that day. But will we be a part of seeing more people and more languages and more nations represented around that throne? See, over the past three weeks, in concluding with today, we've walked through who we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that loves God. We want to be a church that loves the church. We want to be a church that loves the city and a church that loves the world. And each week we've asked these questions, what's keeping us from doing that? Because in reality, guys, we stand in our own way of doing those things. We are often our own worst enemy, our biggest hurdle. It's not something out there, it's often right here. Maybe we're distracted, we're discouraged, hijack God's blessing. We haven't seen the Great Commission as something that's for us. We're more concerned with our comfort than with the joy of the nations or the glory of God. Church, we want to pray that God would make us into those kind of people, that God would make us into that kind of church that loves him unashamedly, that loves the church, that loves the city and loves the